Hi everyone, Brandon here with a quick word before the podcast. Glass Tire is a nonprofit publication that exists thanks to the support of readers and listeners like you. We know times are tough right now, but if you're able, we could really use your help. By visiting glasstire.com donate, you can make a one-time gift or become a monthly sustaining donor to our publication. All of the money we get goes right back into our coverage of Texas and its artists. One more time, that's glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks for listening, and here's today's podcast. Hello, and welcome to Art Dirt. This is Glass Tire's regular podcast, uh, where we discuss topical art topics, as we put it. Uh, my name is Christina Reese. And I'm Brandon Zeck. And this week, uh, we're going to talk about what we feel are the weirdest things about the art world. Um, things that we have learned about by kind of having one hand in it for such a long time um, uh, and seeing all sort of all levels of it from, you know, being inside the artist studios to going to collectors houses, museums, uh, auctions, all of it. We, I mean, there are some really, really strange things that happen at the intersection of art and money uh, as well as some other things. Yeah, and one of the things about this is that, you know, kind of every subculture has its own issues and its own subcultures of that subculture. Um, and that's no different with art. So if you're involved in art, you may know some of these things. You might be able to assume some of these things. But even Christina, like when we were kind of going back and forth before this, there were some things that you thought about that I hadn't. And there were some things I think that I thought about that you hadn't. So this is, you know, it, it's hard to get the entire picture of a community or of a of something that you're involved in. So I think we're going to have two different kind of takes on it. But at the same time, as soon as you said something that I hadn't thought of, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, it, it's funny because as with anything, and when you dive into a new kind of I an industry, which is really what this is, and you start to get to know some of the eccentricities of it, they can be pretty surprising. And a lot of these things I have not thought about in a very long time because I haven't had to because they just seem like plain old facts now, you know, just... Whereas I think if you were talking to somebody who was a little bit new to it, they'd be like, wait, what, really? <laughs> that's weird. Um, and that's kind of what we're, um, what we're covering here. So um, this is meant to be primarily entertaining rather than, um, you know, uh, anything that's going to cause tremendous controversy, but it's still interesting stuff. What do you want to start with? What is the, one of the stranger facts about the art world that strikes you as um, something people maybe either overlook or when they think about it they just have to scratch their head yet again i think one of the ideas that you actually brought to the table you know money is always an interesting component of um any business any sector and i think the the money component and just how unregulated the art market is compared to how big it is is something that we can talk about and also uh, you brought up the kind of free port idea of people buying art storing it and just the general public never seeing it again uh, yeah this to me is when we first even brought up this topic like what are the weirdest things about the art world um 
always the first thing that jumps out or that I think of is the whole weirded. I'm so weirded out by the free ports. So there are these um, tax-free zones outside of major cities, primarily in Switzerland, but also uh, Singapore, Monaco, Luxembourg. And there are these uh, giant storage facilities where so very, very wealthy collectors can buy work. It can be old masterpieces. It can be brand new stuff by the newest, hottest artists on the market. And they buy their work and they store them in these storage facilities, um, sometimes indefinitely, in order to not pay taxes on them. And there's a tremendous amount of artwork in these free ports, in these storage containers and facilities uh, on the outskirts of these cities. And it, I find it strange. It's a little bit amusing, but mostly it's creepy. Um, there's a lot of artwork that basically we're just not going to get to see because um, this is really just part of a collector's portfolio rather than something that the, the public will ever get to view. Well, and another part of this is that I think a lot of a lot of those objects are things that, you know, they're a lot of the same object being sold over and over again. I don't mean an object going back up for like re-auction, but it's like a show in which probably like that entire show could be bought and just immediately shipped and stored like this because the people who are putting artworks in these storage facilities and using art as kind of such a, an important investment, you know, these are obviously people who have a very diverse portfolio of what they're doing, but also they're people who are, buying the art for that reason and that's kind of a different class of collector and that's a less kind of diverse group of people than just people who buy art in general do you know what i'm saying yeah and but the fact that there are these free ports in all these different cities or outside all these different cities and there's a lot of this storage you know it's um Somebody should write a movie about this. It's it's interesting. And I think that a lot of curators and a lot of dealers are a little bit, you know, I mean, I can't imagine being the dealer who sells, you know, five paintings by my newest great artist and then realizes that when I get the shipping information that it's <laughs> it's not going into uh, any place where people are going to get to see it. It's going into a shipping container, essentially a glorified shipping container. And I, I just feel like that would be one of the worst days of my year. But, uh, um, yeah, that's a, that's a thing. And that leads me to this other idea that I think a lot of people don't realize we were talking about this before, uh, we started was when we're talking about vast sums of money and you read the headlines in newspapers following auctions and they list, uh, artworks that sell for tens of millions of dollars. And I think the average Joe may think that a lot of that money goes to the artist and of course it doesn't. And this is kind of an obvious one, but it's also a weird one that an artist does not benefit from the resale of their work, even if it's a pretty new artwork. That's a really good point. You know, one of the things about that is I think whenever anyone sees the fact that um, like a painting or a sculpture or anything win at auction for millions and millions of dollars, they think that the artist is a beneficiary of that. And that's just simply not the case, or at least not in the U.S. or when things are sold in the U.S. All of that money typically goes to the collector or whoever bought that piece. I don't remember what film it is, but there was a, a younger artist who was talking about this, um, and she was saying that basically her work, the price of it, went up overnight because of an auction, actually. And it was, of course, an auction that she didn't see any benefit from, but all of a sudden that affected her primary market 
prices and her sales. And all of a sudden it's like she was working on a $500,000 piece rather than working on a $70,000 piece. And that like messed with her brain. Like this'll, this'll mess with people also because they'll watch, (laughs) they'll watch that happen. I know, uh, I know there's a few stories around Robert Rauschenberg watching that happen with his own work. Yeah, it's been going on for a while. It's it's more it's been much more exaggerated than the last say ten to twenty years. But um, there are a couple of things about that. Number one, in Europe there is a system called droit de suite where the artist gets some residuals from resales, and that's resales from auctions as well as resales out of commercial galleries. It's a percentage, and it's a small percentage, but they do get their checks in at the end of the year. If their work has been resold, it helps a little bit, but mostly it is a way to, it is a market control. It's a, it's an interesting one. And some artists, it does not benefit them if their work does not go to, to auction because the auction is the thing that generally drives up the prices. And so to have something of theirs go to auction and to sell for above asking price, generally it'll drive their primary uh, prices up. And that, that, you know, can be good. Although then what happens and, following this in the United States by the way again artists don't do not get resale anything so you could be a young kind of struggling mm-hmm. artist and have your prices shoot up overnight and you it, there may be a long lag before you are able to finally put down a mortgage on a house that happens also not just to artists who are selling all of a sudden selling a painting for a million dollars at auction but that happens to artists who are younger sometimes and are selling work for eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand dollars, and all of a sudden, if they get with a gallery or if they start working with someone new or if they have something that sells for kind of another level of price point, there's a push and a pull between: Do I try and not price out my current collectors? Are people still going to be able to buy my art if I do this? Am I tapping into a, a kind of a whole new suite of collector base that I don't know about? Or do they not want you my are. stuff? Like there's a there's a constant push and pull around pricing. And I think, Christina, if you're ready to kind of connect this to another point is that no one really teaches artists or talks about pricing work. Like it's kind of a big <laughs> mystery in the art world. And, you know, there's, there's a, a whole thing around it. And Christina, you and I have talked about this before a little bit in different ways about like how to collect art online or how to talk to artists about their work and ask if, you know, you can buy it or how to talk to galleries or how to buy work from galleries. But I think there's a whole, there's a whole lot of a misconception because there's ideas that, you know, if you go straight to the artist, you can, get a discount if they're not actually working with a gallery or there's these whole things about pricing work. And I mean, I feel like one of the things is artists don't really learn in school much about pricing their work. You know, it's one of those like basic skills that it's just left out of curriculum. It's almost like doing your taxes in high school. You don't learn that stuff. Well, again, this comes back to the whole fundamental problem, almost a philosophical problem that it's very hard to assign value to something with ineffable value and it's, it's, I think there's a reason that it's very difficult to teach pricing in school. You know, the prices are set generally, ultimately, by the dealer. If you have a dealer, you set it yourself if, if you're selling out of your studio. But And there are, and this is a kind of a micro-weirdness that we didn't talk about before we, before we hopped on this podcast. But that's mm-hmm. that there are certain, if you are a dealer, you you know why you are going to price one painting higher than another by the same artist. And sometimes it's not about size or how much work goes into it. Sometimes it's as simple as 
It's got too much green in it. And if it's not a landscape, <laughs> it's not going to sell. Green doesn't sell. Uh, red sells better than brown, and we know that. Um, sizes can make a difference. Is it a domestic size that's a great domestic size, or is it a weird size? But these are all, the, this is the kind of stuff that we'll get to dealers in a second. But one of the things we, that we were talking about with prices just suddenly kind of outstripping the stage of career that an artist is in is that this leads to another very strange thing in the art world, which is that while museums are still considered the ultimate destination for a work of art, a, an artist wants their work to be in a museum collection. And dealers, art dealers, really want their artist's work to be in museum collections. Mm -hmm. And yet... Museums cannot afford art anymore. Um, art has become too expensive for museums. So instead of buying them themselves, they've got to get their rich board members and rich collectors to buy the work for them and gift it to them. And of course, a lot of what we're talking about are kind of like the, the pristine prime examples of what a museum feels like they should have. But also, generally, like museums have or are able to get gifted from the artist or I mean, museums are able to have like drawings or smaller works on paper or things but that's not what they want to exhibit most of the time they want to exhibit the big painting that's like the landmark piece of a career and of course just because of what it is and because it's rarity it's so much more expensive and with people who are actually expensive nowadays there's no way that a museum is going to blow all of its acquisition budget on like one major thing. Or if so, they'll kind of be talked about a lot and maybe criticized for doing it. Like, I don't remember what museum recently did it, but a museum recently spent a couple million, I think, on a Jordan Wolfson sculpture. And it was like their acquisition budget for the year. Wow. <laughs> of all artists, on that note, uh, paintings are still generally the most expensive artworks out there, which I find interesting in 2020. Uh, it, I don't think that that hasn't been true for ever. Um, people pay more for paintings than they pay for any other kind of artwork. You can speculate on why that's true. I think a lot of it is just practical. Um, paintings are easier to store than sculpture. There's a, obviously a tr tremendous historical weight behind uh, just what a painting is and why it exists. Um, but uh, that's another just true thing. So if you're looking for the highest auction prices, uh, historically, look at paintings. I think there's a component to it also. Just we generally know how paintings are made. Maybe this is too philosophically waxing, but like we can understand the work that's put into a painting much easier than we can understand the work that's put into like a wax burnout cast bronze sculpture just because like any like you you painted when you were a kid you used finger paints you know you know that it's hard to do what you see in front of you on the canvas so there's just some sort of general understanding of value around it also like photography yeah. isn't near like it, a painting is also you know there's no way to reproduce it that's it even if a photograph is described as like unique or there's one print it's like you know well you could always print another one is always kind of like the argument whereas with a painting it's like that painter can't do that exact same thing again, although they probably could. Right. The uniqueness is definitely part of it, but also the the fact that there's a piece of that artist in it. I mean, there's a physical, there is strangely a kind of a spiritual and physical manifestation of the artist themselves 
in the painting because of the work that's involved in doing it. And I think people are willing to pay a premium for that. They're actually paying for labor. They're willing to pay more money because they can see the actual labor and the artist's hand. And I, and I, and I believe that that's generally why paintings are more expensive than photographs or uh, additioned work or anything else. As cheesy as it sounds, it is true. It's like, the artist did this thing with their hands or, you know, or their studio assistants did like, the, I don't know. Is it cheesy? It's just human. It's like, I, if oh, I'm yeah. going to pay $50 million for this, I want a piece of that artist, whether they're alive or dead. I mean, collectors are collectors. A lot of them are like, I mean, they're practically, I mean, they're, they're practically predators. I'm sorry to say it. I mean, they really do want a piece of a person's soul if they're going to be paying that much money. Not all of them, but some of them. A photograph has a person's eye, whereas a painting has a person's hand. And it's the hand that is the creative element. You know, that's, I feel like that's kind of the way that a lot of people see it. If you want a, a really good critique of just painting in general, uh, there's a video piece by Paul McCarthy that's called Painter, where he just basically smears paint around on a canvas and moans de Kooning the entire time. Um, like he moans yes. the word de Kooning. It's a perfect kind of representation of, I think what were the meat of what we're talking about. Right, right, right. Um, and because every, in a painting, every single, every single millimeter of that canvas, a decision has been made and you can see it. And um, that's, that's another reason for, for its expense. You know, having said that, one of the things we talked about and that I found interesting and weird as I got into as I got into a slightly more rarefied art scene when I lived in London and when I lived in New York and then to some degree even a little bit in Dallas off and on, but is how sheep like collectors can be. So you think that collectors would all kind of have their own very specific tastes and that they would be pursuing the specific thing that they love that's very individual to them. But in household after household, collector after collector, I can't tell you, Brandon, how many Damien Hirst spin paintings and dot paintings I saw in house after house. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Like, you know, Damien Hirst is, I mean, he's certainly made some great work in the distant past, and um, and he's got his name recognition and everything like this, but this was never his best work. It was always kind of a little bit of a con. It was like a way of creating additioned work without it being additions, but it practically was, and the paintings are expensive, and to me it was always a little bit... Um, it was always a little bit heart-wrenching to walk into a person's house and to see yet another Damien Hirst uh, spin painting or dot painting. It was like, oh, God, this, surely this money could have been spent on something other than this. You know, I think part of that is once you get to an upper echelon of collecting, um, and that's that's kind of what we're talking about here, because you and I have also both been into people's homes who have wonderful, unique collections where you can tell they're really buying and living with what they love. Um, and I feel like in Texas, there's actually a, a majority of collectors are that way and are buying with their heart and find artists that they want to support and they're doing it for so many of the right reasons. But in terms of kind of that upper echelon, there's a performative quality to it. And, you know, this is also one of the weird things about the art world, specifically as a collector, you have to you have to perform the right way and have the right That's pedigree, right. or else That's right. you won't get other things that are of the right pedigree. It's kind of like a catch twenty two about how these, you know, these mega galleries can kind of limit your ability to buy things. 
they may not sell you something. That's right. I'm really yeah. glad you brought this up. No, you're absolutely right. There are dealers who will not sell you the painting you most want until you buy two paintings by this other new artist who they're trying to promote. Um, these are these backroom deals that happen. Again, it's kind of just... It's just, uh, it's what you kind of expect at the, at the upper reaches of capitalism. And it absolutely does happen. Well, and it's, it's the sort of thing where, again, I want to emphasize again, just because Christina, you and I know so many dealers and so many collectors that are doing it for the right reasons and that have amazing collections and that don't buy into this, but there are some dealers and, you know, we're talking probably a lot of New York Chelsea stuff that they, they don't want to place a piece by this artist or a piece by someone in their stable in your house if you don't have like a good Damien Hurst painting if you don't have a collection itself that <laughs> has that pedigree and there are just hallmarks of art collecting at that tier that are pedigree if you have 50 by 50 Damien Hurst spot painting a you can probably afford what they're selling and b they know it's going to a home where that collection or parts of that collection might eventually be given to a museum circling back on the fact that museums can't afford art anymore. So the art that they're selling you has a higher uh, likelihood to be given to that museum also and perpetuate their own careers. And it's kind of this vicious, again, it's a catch 22. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah, that's right. But saying that, and certainly we've talked a lot about being in Texas and wanting to be in Texas so that we're, we have a, at least a little bit of distance from, the, the most cynical aspects of the market. And, you know, and we've talked about that many times, but one of the things that we've tried to do in art dirts, as well as uh, various things we publish in glass tires to kind of demystify the process of going in and buying art. And ultimately it really is. It's just a deal. It's just a business deal. It's just an exchange of money for a product. And so it seems like the strangest thing, probably the first time you walk into a gallery and decide to buy a work of art, I would imagine it would be a very strange experience for some people. Oh, it is. The very first time I ever asked a gallery to buy a piece, it was, I mean, it was only $200 and I was still like, how, how do I do this? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's on the wall. It's a little otherworldly. It's like, do I like how... Just how do I, I, I mean, you know, I know I don't take it off the wall and bring it to the desk, but like, but how, how does this go down? I've never, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, and then you realize that there are people who are walking into galleries in, you know, London and Los Angeles and New York who are just so, you know, they just, they just put their cards on the table and they buy a, you know, $20 million painting and that's that. And they don't flinch. And then we're all, oh, what, how do you even figure out the value of this $500 thing I'm about to buy from you? But um, you have to sort of trust the dealers. Can I just talk about dealers for a second as a weirdness of the art world? Yeah. Okay, so you, you know how much I love this subject because I really like art dealers and I actually, and I used to be one very briefly. But um, I think gallerists and art dealers are the strangest people in the art world. I think they're weirder than the artists. Um, they're, believe it or not, weirder than the collectors. And I think the collectors are kind of the second strangest people in the art world. But they're much, much stranger than the academics and the curators. And to me, the, de the dealers have to have this incredibly strange combination of traits that it's very rare. And they're all very different from one another. There's not a single dealer who 
reminds me of another dealer. Not really. Mm -hmm. They're super eccentric. But the idea of having to combine what really is an extremely heightened aesthetic, an aesthetic sense, and a real passion for art, like a true passion. They have to have it if they're going to be any good, frankly. If they're going to have any longevity and sell anything for a lot of money, they have to believe in what they're selling because people can smell the bullshit. So they've got to really believe in the art, but they have to not have terrible problems with that weird intersection of art and commerce with what the money is and where it's coming from and who they're selling to. And I think it creates a kind of cognitive dissonance uh, within the person that the, the way they deal with it is what makes them sort of eccentric. I think coping mechanisms get really, really weird. You never see this because the other thing about art dealers is they've got to be incredibly discreet. Well, that and they also have to be the foil to the artist who is supposed to be the weird one in the transaction. That's right. That's right. So there's got there's this facade of um, that that's not brittle, that's not strange, that's not eccentric. You know, it's just very straightforward because they are in the end their job is to make the sale. Um, so there has to be something. Uh, the interface has to be facilitated and by the dealer's personality essentially. They're just terrific salespeople, really, but they just happen to really, really love their product. But it makes it, it, it is a very strange thing because art in itself is such a strange thing that's so hard to assign value to. Having said that, um, and how much I like art dealers, and you're, you're almost not going to get to know an art dealer well enough to understand just how eccentric they are, and they are. But um, they are also another strange thing to me about the art world, and we didn't really talk about this before uh, we hopped on this podcast, but mm-hmm. I think still to this day, and we don't know what the economy is going to do and the recession is going to do, but um, in recent history, the most uh, progressive work or avant-garde work, uh, the newest work, the most interesting work, tends to debut in a commercial space. Well, and we have talked about that idea before, um, and I think I may have written about that idea before, just simply because galleries, sometimes the way that they work, which, you know, another quick kind of weird thing about the art world is that it's not like everything they do is raking in money. It's like a lot of times galleries have... Uh, a couple shows a year, maybe maybe two, that are kind of by artists that they predict and kind of know do really well that fund some of the more eccentric and groundbreaking things that they do. You know, the show of weird video and kinetic pieces that might not sell anything out of the show, but it'll be giving an artist a chance and introducing something new to the world will kind of be funded by the show of landscape paintings that they know are going to fly off the walls. That's right. And it's very important. It's that it's, it is a real push pull. It's kind of like, I think we've talked about this before. It's like Steven Spielberg making his big, you know, science fiction action movie in order to bankroll his smaller, more intimate project that he does the following year. And dealers do exactly that. This is a very common practice, but it's the capital that they're able to put behind more experimental work for these shows that don't sell that helps create an environment for really, really interesting work to get out there in front of an audience. And I'm not saying that artist-run spaces and nonprofits don't show really interesting work. Of course they do. But there's something about the process of a dealer 
believing in the even just kind of the seeds of an idea or, or an artist when they're still very new and being able to throw some money at it for presentation and for providing context and for getting collectors and curators and academics in front of it to start that conversation that I think is so valuable. Now, you know, I'm afraid that with COVID and everything that we're going to lose a number of galleries and we already know that smaller galleries and mid-tier galleries have been endangered for a long time, uh, that the mm -hmm. art world has become too big and things have become really too expensive for them to exist comfortably. And rents and real estate have a lot to do with that, of course, in all of these heavily gentrifying cities. Well, the fact that very few galleries and probably even fewer or just as few nonprofit spaces don't actually own the building or the land or anything that they're involved with like they're renting their spaces and this is true this is true even in texas where compared to somewhere like new york space is relatively you know relatively affordable so that only kind of exacerbates the issue you know there are things to be said for renting and not having upkeep of you know a building or property versus owning but kind of in the long haul, it puts you more at risk for being pushed out. Oh, absolutely. And I think that for artists, you know, for really right on young artists who, you know, kind of take um, a darker view or a dim view of art dealers or commercial spaces because they think of them as the establishment, I would suggest you kind of rethink that a little bit because the precarity of existence for an art gallery in Texas is there's no guarantee ever. I mean, they're skating on a thin line of profit margins that is can be th thinner than any nonprofit, and um, they're taking tremendous risk, and it's costing them a lot of money to stay open. And you know, it's really uh, at this point, it's only the biggest galleries and the mega galleries that you could count as being, you know, as established and probably safe from uh, a shit economy as I would like to say as major museums, but even major museums as we're finding out are not having an easy time weathering this particular storm. Mm -hmm. So think of galleries, not necessarily as an enemy or an, as an establishment cause, but rather, you know, it's just another, another entry point uh, for getting your work out there and maybe being able to do some of the most interesting work of your life and having an audience for it and maybe even being able to sell a little bit of it. Hey, well, and thinking about selling art, uh, I feel like one of the really weird things about the art world that is actually kind of unique to the art world, at least in the past little while where I've been thinking about it, I haven't been able to find a lot of instances where it's also true, is that people who have careers in the art world, or rather more pointedly artists whose career is being an artist, um, a lot of times that career isn't sustainable as a main income stream. And mm. I feel like artists and the art world, it's it's one of the rare instances where that is where where that's the case. Like, uh, for example, you won't see like an engineer who also paints models. You won't see them saying that their career is painting models and that their income stream is being an engineer. That's that's kind of that's totally an unfair comparison. I'm not I'm not I'm not comparing making art to making models as a hobby, but a ton of artists, their career is being an artist, who they are is an artist, but it makes maybe as much as a part time job or or maybe less. And they have these other things that are just supplementing what their main career and what their main passion is. And I, I am hard pressed to think of other instances where 
that's right the case i mean because the disparity is so significant like there are so many artists who are if you ask them what they are they're going to say i'm an artist and then they'll say i am also a professor or i am also a bartender or i also install art you're not going to talk to someone who's an art installer most of the time i would say and they're going to say oh well i'm an art installer but i also make art they're going to say they're an artist. I would say probably that's that's true of visual art. It's true kind of just in the in the creative industries. I mean, I think if you go yeah. to Los Angeles and, and ask your waiter what they do for a living, they're not going to say that they wait tables. They're going to say they're, they're an, an actor. actor. Yeah. But but um, but it's really the creative industries where this is where this is uh, true. It's the same with degrees with earning uh, higher degrees. So an MFA will cost you possibly. and yet um, you're meant to make artwork as a way to buy your way out of that debt. Most, you know, advanced degrees are in business or law or medicine or STEM. And um, there's some sense of semi-guarantee that you're going to be able to uh, pay off your student loans and uh, and get out of that debt because you're going into a lucrative business. But, mm-hmm. you know, MFAs are very, very expensive degrees and there are absolutely zero guarantees about making a living with the thing that you earned your degree in. Well, I'll take a little bit of a detour here with one that I think is is interesting, um, is which is about stolen art. So every year there are headlines about something being stolen from somewhere. Some you know some thieves walking into a museum and slashing a, a canvas out of its frame and uh, putting it in a backpack and leaving. Mm-hmm. And these security cameras catch the stuff. And private collectors' uh, houses get broken into. Art gets stolen. But what happens to the art? And I think that there could be a kind of almost romantic myth that the art is going to somebody who wants it, who loves it, who's going to, you know, display it privately in their own home. But uh, mostly, mostly stolen art is used as collateral. Um, It's uh, taken into storage. It holds its value. A Picasso is going to hold its value, whether it's in a storage locker, it's on somebody's wall and it's used as collateral in drug deals and ransoms and or often they just realize they can't sell it or use it at all. Um, sometimes these works are just destroyed because they become they're burdens. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, but there there are still cases where uh, artwork itself can be ransomed. I mean, there was a case um, not that long ago that the Tate paid I think around five million dollars for information leading to the return of a couple of turners that had been stolen. Um, so, but when you th- hear about an artwork being stolen, the weird thing is, is it's either a, just a knucklehead who didn't realize that they're not going to be able to unload this thing for any amount of money <laughs> because Interpol and everyone else is tracking the theft and everyone knows that it's stolen art mm-hmm. or it's, um, it's a kind of higher level, um, organized crime situation and they really are just going to use it as stored collateral indefinitely the stuff may never see the light of day again yeah like the romantic idea you were talking about of you know someone stealing it because they want it for their collection or they're going to sell it to a collector well the whole thing about art is either being able to have it and show it off or being able to store it and have it as an investment and you're not going to be able to publicly sell a stolen piece. So that's kind of off the table with that. And if you display it in your house and you have your friends over who are also art connoisseurs, they'll probably realize that that's the stolen piece. So then that's kind of out. 
So unless you're just selling it and reselling it on the black market, which totally could be a case, it's pointless. Yeah, no, and and that's much more true in our kind of modern age, our modern digital age. Uh, I think once upon a time, uh, before the Mm -hmm. internet and before global tracking, I think it's probably true that people could steal art and display it on their walls in their own tighter you know communities or circles but certainly if that has not been true for a very long time so uh when you hear about stolen artwork you may as well grieve uh basically the death of that work because you may ne- you may never see it in a museum again um and then th- but i th- i think this leads to kind of your last point which i really like and it wasn't something that i had thought about for a long time although it is something that i occasionally explain to somebody who's just starting to get into art collecting but that is go ahead the fact that there are a ton of different art worlds and this again we kind of started talking about this conversation with the idea that you know the art world or just dealing in art is a subculture unto itself and the fact that subcultures have subcultures you know think about like superhero movies there's the marvel universe there's the dc universe and sometimes there's crossover between fandoms but there's also a lot of just kind of like die hard fans who will die in their camp and never step over to the other side um or may kind of flirt with it but aren't really into it that's at least in my experience, been what the art world is. Like there is a... Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a commercial art world. There is kind of like an artist-run drifting art world. There is a folk art world where like people collect folk art and write about folk art and deal in folk art, and that is what they do. There's a performance art world. In Houston, there's a really strong performance art world, but I think I've mentioned this before also it doesn't cross over a lot. Like you're not going to see a dealer at a performance art event most of the time. Again, of course there are exceptions and you're not going to see people from the performance art world just out and about at gallery openings on a Friday night. There's an experimental music world. There are all of these segments that you can, you can find where you fit in. Or I I think Christina, kind of what you and I do is we just really hop around and just, get a smattering of everything in part because it's our job but i think also you and i just have kind of a wide range of tolerance for stuff i know i know some people from the kind of more commercial visual art world who don't do performance stuff a because it's not their bag but also because they're just not willing to sit through stuff to find the one thing they really like and i get that and i respect that yeah and there are a lot of multidisciplinary artists who dabble in different things and so they even they have one foot in one thing and one foot in another and you'll see them do performance art and you'll see them also make art objects that are saleable but um one i think real interesting delineation is the difference between photography collectors oh yeah and other collectors the photography thing is a, it's really serious and there are people who uh, collect only photography that's very common in fact that that in that separation between the two photography galleries they only do uh, photographs yeah. that's true in texas it's true elsewhere it's been true for a long time and there have been people who've tried to kind of erase those lines before but they're that's a strangely resilient uh border that's so true in photography and i mean it also happens maybe less frequently but it also happens in things like craft in things like glass and things like Mm -hmm. you know a lot of it is there's communities based on like artistic mediums of all things Mm -hmm. also you're Mm -hmm. talking about artists that like do crossovers there are a ton that cross over 
in the in the different worlds but also i feel like i will see the visual commercial art people at a performance if it's happening at a commercial gallery i don't see them Mm -hmm. at the performance if it's happening at this weird oddball artist run space so part of it is almost dependent on venue and dependent on location because i think that's again it's just kind of part of our human nature of not wanting to you know we have habits we want to go to the places we want to go to we're used to going to the places that we go to and a lot of times literally just kind of physical boundaries are the deciding factor to our worlds in every case that that means right and so sometimes sometimes some of the best advice you can give somebody who's starting to delve into this whether they are making art or buying art or just wanting to start going to see it is to remind them that there are a lot of art worlds and you know your personal art world is kind of what you make of it um you get to put that together you get to decide what those what those boundaries are or those parameters are, what interests you, why it interests you. And that's a lovely thing about the art world. And it's a way that I think that it does kind of uh, differentiate itself from some other industries, but um, there is that it's a, it, it still can be a very personalized space. Although these, um, you know, these different sectors can be not always so kind about other sectors, but uh, you can choose to ignore that. Um, you know, again, it's it's kind of up to you. And in Texas, I feel like there's a lot of freedom. There's a kind of a certain amount of freedom because I just feel like things are always still being established here. <laughs> it's yeah. like th- things just have never really gotten set in stone here. Um, and now, of course, things have been that much more disrupted. So maybe we can look at a silver lining aspect of it and think that, you know, things are pretty much up for grabs now and will be, I guess, for the next two to 10 years. Yeah. Um, again, I worry about, I worry about our galleries and I worry about our artists making a living and I worry about our art schools and that's a conversation for another day, but. Is it odd that weirdly, I think this conversation maybe more than a lot of our past ones about things we miss or don't miss has made me nostalgic for wanting to go to a gallery in person. Oh, God. I mean, I, I miss the galleries and I I forget how much that was just kind of part of a normal week is just to dip in and out of commercial spaces just to see what they've got on the walls or and just and to have a chat. I mean, if you're going to go in and have a chat with somebody who's invested, truly mm-hmm. go into a gallery and talk to that dealer if you can get them to talk to you. Um, yeah, I miss it, too. I know. Well, on that note of missing galleries, uh, and as you all know, we miss museums, um, we will leave you to it. But um, again, whether you're old school and have been around the art world for a long time, we've probably reminded you of some kind of strange things that struck you once upon a time and you hadn't thought about in a while. If you're new to it, welcome. It's a weird world. (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's no education like being in it because you learn this stuff. Also, like in Christina, there's so many intricacies and other things that you and I, we, we could keep going on all day, but we're not going to. And uh, we're not going to say go see some art, but see some art. Plenty of art you can see from home right now. And uh, being in Texas, that is what we're going to recommend. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.